Hi everyone, you're listening to Accents. I am Katerina Stoikova and I currently serve as the director of the Kentucky Book Festival. With me is writer Margaret Verbal, one of the authors who will join us on October 21st. Hi Margaret, thank you for making time for this conversation. Thank you for inviting me. One of the reasons for today's podcast is your novel, Stealing. It's a novel that has been long time in the making and publishing. Well, it wasn't long in the making, but it was long in the publishing. Can you tell us the story? Uh, yes. I, in fact, I wrote this novel in a very short time, in 2006 and 2007, over a period of just a few months. And uh, the novel came to me very easily, much more easily than any other novel I've ever written or have heard about being written. Uh, and had I not been flying back and forth to the UK at the time to work, I probably could have written it just in a matter of weeks. Uh, but when I began to send it out to get an agent for it, uh, I got some nice comments back from the agents about the way the book was written, but it was clear to me pretty early on that they did not understand what I was really writing about, that, um, which is basically about uh, Native children or a Native child uh, being sent off to a boarding school. And uh, the agents in New York uh, just didn't know that that was a problem. And so I set the book aside in a folder on my computer and just went on about my writing life. But then when the scandal broke up in Canada about the First Nations boarding schools up there, I mentioned to my agent, Lynn Nesbitt, uh, that I had this book already written. And she said, send it to me. And I said, okay, well, let me, I haven't looked at it in years, Lynn, let me, let me uh, look at it and um, tinker with it just a little bit, and I'll send it on to you. And uh, she called me up in about three weeks and said, send it now. And I said, well, I am just, I am just about ready to send it. I will do that. And so I did, and she immediately uh, sold it to my um, publisher, Harper Collins. And they uh, scheduled it to come out for April of this year, but then they moved it up and, and brought it out in February. So the time came, the right time arrived, and then everything happened very quickly. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And success in publishing, I believe, is largely or often a matter of timing, not just writing, but timing. You said that whoever reads your book first didn't understand what you were writing about. Do you feel like they needed to see it reflected to them from world events? Well, I think they did not understand that this had been a problem in this country for 150 years. They just didn't know that. It's just like uh, white people don't know that black people get beat up by cops unless, until they see it on the videos. But, you know, all African-Americans know that and have known it, you know, for time and memorial. So the people who I'd sent the book to, which was not the agent that I wound up with, 
just simply did not know this was a problem. And um, until it became evident in the news. And I think, I think that in general, uh, at least where I publish, which is in New York, um, the, the people who are making decisions up there want the literature to reflect what the country's interested in so that they can get readers. And uh, Lynn recognized that this, if they found these graves up in Canada, they were going to find them down here in the United States. It was just a matter of a very short period of time. And of course, she was right about that. Stealing is set in the 1950s, and that was a different time. Has everything changed for the better? Well, things have changed for the better. The, the, uh, the boarding schools are, for the most part, dismantled. That whole system. You say for the most part. Yeah, oh, there are still Indian boarding schools, yes. Um, but for the most part, the system has been dismantled. And uh, in the late 1970s, uh, the um, Indian Child Welfare Act was passed. And that the purpose of that was to keep Native children with Native families. Uh, there are a, a lot of good estimates that say that one in three or one in four of all Native American children were removed from their own families and placed in, with white families or in boarding schools for decades, and that has stopped. What does an Indian boarding school look like nowadays? Well, I haven't been in one nowadays, um, but they, they look, they were, some of them run by the government, uh, and they were, those tend to be somewhat militaristic, uh, but some, a lot of them were run by churches. And then some of them were, were regular or orphanages where, where they made deals to bring uh, Indian children, Native children, into those schools. So there's not a one-size-fits-all uh, in these boarding schools. And I felt like in setting the book in the 1950s, with writing about a Cherokee child that would be more likely for her to be sent to a church-related school than to a government-run school. And so that's what I did. What is this novel's relationship to your other novels? Well, two of my other novels, Maud's Line and Cherokee America, are tied together. They, in fact, four of the people who are old people in Maud's line are young people in Cherokee America. So those are related novels. Uh, my third novel, When Two Feathers Fell from the Sky, is not related to either of those novels, and neither is stealing. I would read for everyone who is listening the first two sentences from your bio. 
Margaret Verbo is an enrolled citizen of the Cherokee Nation and a member of a large Cherokee family that has, through generations, made many contributions to the tribe's history and survival. So would you mind telling us more about your family? Well, in terms of what you just read, I will say in terms of contributions to the tribe, uh, my first cousin, John Hayworth, uh, was for 15 years until he retired a few years ago, the um, director of the uh, American, uh, in, uh, American Indian Museum in lower Manhattan, and that's uh, wing of the Smithsonian. Um, my mother's first cousin, uh, Earl Boyd Pierce, was the travel attorney for the Cherokees for about 40 years. So I come from a family that um, was well aware of our, um, you know, our Indian, Indian roots, our Cherokee roots. What is family to you? What is your definition of family? Well, the way we've been talking about it, it, it is blood kin. That's the context you and I have been talking in. I don't think that's always true of the way the word family is used, but that's the way you, we're using it in this conversation. Right, so here is an opportunity if you have a wider definition or a different definition of family to share with our listeners. For, the, for Cherokees, uh, family is often cousins of cousins. <laughs> and, you know, I have fifth cousins that I know. This is not unusual. And I know their cousins. So there's a wide, uh, you know, a network of people that are family in one way or the other. And your book, Stealing, is dedicated to your cousin. Leisha. Leisha. Yes. Yes, okay. Leisha is my first cousin. And we were rather raised as pseudo-siblings and uh, are good friends. So when and how did you start writing? Well, I started writing when I was in graduate school at the University of Kentucky. But um, I started writing short stories, basically. And then I discovered that I needed to earn a living and it's hard for writers to earn a living. And so um, I stopped writing and, and started earning a living. Now that involves some writing. I've written for, uh, you know, referee journals and I've ghostwritten and I've written booklets and things like that. Um, but I didn't start writing fiction again until midlife. And um, I just got to where I felt like that I needed to do it. And uh, so I did. That happened to me too. I didn't write for 11 years that I had that kind of stretch in my life and I didn't feel like myself, but I didn't know it at the time. And when I started writing creatively again, it felt as though a large part of me came back to me. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. How did it feel like for you to start writing again? Well, I had gotten to the point where I just, it, just like I could feel words trying to get out of the ends of my fingertips. And uh, so I just had to do it as compulsion to do it. It wasn't, a, it wasn't really a choice to do it, it was compulsion. 
And, uh, you know, it felt good. But I also did not want to be a person who just wrote for, the, for my own sake. Um, I had things that I wanted other people to read. But I do think that if people are writing for their, just for themselves, that that's, that's okay too. That's just not the choice for me. You said that you have started by writing short stories. Should we expect a short story collection at some point? <laughs> well, I have, I, I've had some short stories published, I don't know, six or seven short stories published. And because I was given advice that that was a good way to, to get a novel published was build credentials that way. And I enjoy short stories, and I do think that they, that, that, you know, they're just a delightful uh, literary form. But I'm, I'm a novelist. I'm not going to be writing short stories. Several years ago, I interviewed writer Tommy Orange about his novel, Dare Dare. I asked him what he thinks is the biggest issue facing the Native American people nowadays. At the time, he said, the coronavirus. What would be your answer to the same question? I think my answer would be sovereignty. The uh, Native tribes are sovereign nations, and that is in the Constitution. You can go read it yourself. And yet, we have not uh, been treated that way and all across Indian country, you see a move towards sovereignty. And this is, this is a real issue in Oklahoma. The governor of Oklahoma is very disturbed about this. The Cherokees are very disturbed with the governor of Oklahoma, and so are the other tribes. Uh, but, you know, the Indian tribes are sovereign nations. What could be done? What could be done about what? Sovereignty. Well, uh, we're fighting that in the courts, and it is uh, case by case, inch by inch, um, water body by water body. Um, there are treaties all over the United States that give water rights to the tribes. They're often infringed upon. Certainly the land rights have been infringed, infringed upon. Certainly the right to have our own government has been infringed upon. When I was growing up, the, uh, Bill Keeler was the chief of the Cherokees, but he was appointed by the government, mainly for ceremonial purposes, because uh, when the state of Oklahoma was created, they dissolved the governments of the tribes although the tribes had had governments from time in, you know, from, from the beginning. And um, it took decades for us to even be able to have our own chiefs. Um, I remember <laughs> when we got the right to have our, uh, elect our own chiefs, my uh, cousin Earl was uh, the tribal attorney at the time, and he, uh, uh, you know, m had my grandmother send all the documentation to me so, and to all the rest of my generation and our family, 
so that we could be enrolled uh, and so we could vote for chief. And that was in the late 1970s. So the period from um, roughly 1907 to the late 1970s was what um, some some natives, some Cherokees called the termination period. Um, the law was structured so that if you had not been enrolled before 1907, even if you were full blood, you would not be an Indian. And that was the way that they were going to, they were going to do away with the Indian tribes. And I guess it's a whole lot easier to keep in touch and to be enrolled if you're in a community. Yes, it is. Uh, and, and the Cherokee Nation is just absolutely thriving now, is the economic engine of uh, northeastern Oklahoma. Uh, and if you go to Tahlequah, a new building is being built, you know, every time you go. Um, they've been <laughs> working on a roundabout now for months and uh, I mean the construction is just amazing uh, but it is easy it is easier to to feel that community there but also the Cherokees are dispersed and there are places like California and, and Dallas and and other places where uh, there are um, communities of what are called at-large citizens I'm an at-large citizen, but I don't. I don't think there's another Cherokee in town, so um, that doesn't do me much good. But I go to Oklahoma a good bit. I've been, I've probably been there. Uh, I don't know, three or four weeks this year alone. Well, I beg to differ. I don't think that you're an at-large citizen. I think you're larger than life citizen <laughs> of the Cherokee tribe, and I'm sure they're very proud of you and how you represent them. Well, you know, we get along. <laughs> <laughs> what brought you to Kentucky? I came to Kentucky uh, to graduate, well, to undergraduate school. And uh, my father was originally from Kentucky. We kept coming up here to the races, to Keeneland, when I was a kid. And so it seemed like a good place uh, for them to send me. And uh, I lived in Nashville, or grew up in Nashville. And uh, so they sent me up here to school. And I have one last question. Okay. And that is a question that I ask all my guests who teach creative writing sometimes. And that is, what is the most important thing you teach your students? If there is one thing you want them to remember from your class or workshop, what is it? Well, uh, this will probably come as a surprise. I, I've never taught creative writing. Okay. I do teach, but I, I teach something that doesn't have anything at all to do with literature, although it has a lot to do with language. But to theoretically, then, to answer your question, I think that each uh, writer needs to find their own voice. And then if they're a novelist, they have to be able to hear other voices because the voice that a novel is written in is extremely important. And it is not necessarily the voice of the author, but the author has to have a voice. 
Thank you so much, Margaret. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to meet you and to be here. I look forward to spending time with you at the festival. Me too.